The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! And we're back for another episode of the Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a movie podcast. And I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel Harper. How are you doing, sir? I'm enjoying this Christmas podcast. Yeah, we're, we're on Christmas. I, I definitely have to give a special thanks to my co-hosts for taking up some of their valuable Christmas time to actually podcast tonight. So it's very much appreciated. And we have a special guest this time around. Uh, we have the Beer Zerker who is a beer-tubing friend of mine, and he was excited to actually talk about Zardoz, the movie we're going to be covering tonight, so uh, we brought him on. So uh, how are you doing, sir? Oh, good. Glad to be here. Right on. Feeling good? <laughs> Feeling good. Hold on, hold on. Did you watch the film, or did you fast-forward through it? Uh, I watched it twice. Awesome. That's like yeah, that's like twice that. as well as... Uh, that's That's like... Way more than twice as well as Paul usually does, so uh, let's just shit can Paul. How does that sound? <laughs> yeah. Paul, I love you. I'm just joking. <laughs> All right, so yeah, we're, we're definitely going to be talking about some uh, Sean Connery and Red Diapers later on, but before we do that, we definitely have a couple of comments we need to get to. Two, just two very brief ones. Greg uh, made a comment. He said, Sorry for the lack of comments, but Fallout 4 has been taking up all my free time and I haven't had much time to watch any other movies you are discussing. Well, that's understandable, Greg. And fuck you, by the way, because I still don't have an Xbox One or Fallout 4, so you're a bitch. That's all I have to say about that. Uh, Nage37 says, Thank you so much for covering my favorite director. You've made this Brooks nerd very happy. The podcast keeps getting better and better. Well, thank you very much, sir. Glad to see our efforts are appreciated. And uh, we had a lot of fun doing the Mel Brooks episode, so... We should, we should definitely do more Mel Brooks. Uh, I would love to do, uh, like, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein would be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, an episode I'd love to do. Yeah, that, that's something we'll uh, put into the uh, back burner and get to. Definitely in 2016. Uh, okay, so uh, that, that was it for comments. I think we can get right into what we've been watching lately, and uh, I'll throw it to you first, Daniel, if uh, I know you have a bunch of things you want to talk about, so uh, go ahead. Sure, I'll uh, try to keep it brief. I've been uh, listening to, I mentioned this on the uh, podcast before, I've been listening to the uh, City of the Dead podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. A couple of friends of mine do that, and it's an awesome podcast, and that's a... Uh, Podcasts where they're doing every Amicus film in order. So I'm basically, and they do that once a month. I'm I'm a few months behind, but I'm pretty much caught up with them now. So basically, I'm I'm watching all of them in order. And the first one I watched was a movie called It's Trad Dad. Uh, <laughs> the, these first two are not quite official Amicus films. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were kind of uh, films made by the producers of Amicus before there was official Amicus. Yeah. Um, it's Trad Dad is a uh, film. It's about the uh, traditional jazz scene in 1962. So it's basically <laughs> that 
basically it's a film about the English pop music scene right before the Beatles showed up. And on that level, it's actually kind of fascinating. It's uh, very much a concert film, and it uh, could be really, really boring and kind of stupid, except that it's actually directed by Richard Lester, who would uh, go on to direct a couple of the Beatles films, including it's uh, including A Hard Day's Night, mm-hmm. and would uh, direct one and a half of the Christopher Reeves Superman film. <laughs> he was he was kind of the, the guy who took over for Richard Donner for Superman 2 when uh, uh and it's it's funny, it breaks the fourth wall a lot. It's a film that's really built on the kind of comedic styles of the early sixties British stuff. It kind of feels very Monty Python esque in a way. I mean there's a scene where uh there's this uh, ticket taker who doesn't want to uh let the kids in. So they kind of Connive a scheme to let the, to get them in, and then like after he lets them in, the uh, one of the leads, the male lead, turns to camera and just says, "Can we get a pie at this guy, please?" And then a pie just hits him from from off camera, <laughs> um, which is uh, you know it's it's that kind of film. It's really clever and innovative, and uh, it's it's worth your time. It, it's findable among the uh, various ways that you can find these sorts of things, and uh, you know if it wasn't for uh, the the really nice direction and uh, Helen Shapiro. She was a uh, pop music star in the 60s in Britain, and she's like 16 years old or something in this film, and she's kind of the co-lead, and she's not a great actress, actress, but she's definitely a great presence. Um, so it's definitely, uh, it, it's worth a watch. It's like 85 minutes long. It, it's worth your time. It's, it's a lot of fun. The second film I watched was a complete ripoff of its trad dad by the same uh, people, <laughs> and it didn't have Richard Lester directing it, and it didn't have anyone um, intelligent or charming. It's called Just for Fun, and it wasn't a lot of fun at all. It was actually <laughs> I, I actually I actually cut that off after 30 minutes. I was like, I'm done with this. Um, it's it's uh, very 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 dull, and I feel bad because I actually had to. Uh, message uh, one of the co-hosts of the uh, City of the Dead podcast in order to get a copy of it because I couldn't find a copy. And uh, she she sent me a link to it and, and found it for me. And uh, then I felt bad for not watching it, but even she said, this is this is terrible. Um, <laughs> I think part of the reason is uh, Jimmy Savile is in a small role in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, Jimmy Savile is, uh, was a children's entertainer in uh, Britain who was uh, convicted of uh, child molestation. Yeah. And, uh, so there's, there's uh, very little uh, desire to put out stuff that uh, he was in. Yeah. Um, that film is completely skippable, and all the positive things I said about Strad Dad, you should just not pay any attention to just for fun, just skip it entirely. The third film that I'm going to talk about, and I'm trying to run through these quickly, I'm sorry to talk so much, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, uh-huh. um, which is the first kind of official Amicus film, first of their anthology horror films, and it's a terrible title and a good movie, mm-hmm. or it really is one of those where the title has nothing to do with the film, ultimately. Yeah. He's called Dr. Terror because he's just called Dr. Terror, and House of Horrors is what he calls his tarot deck, and it's basically, we're in a, a train car, and we're doing tarot on a bunch of people, and uh, watching the stories of how they all are going to die horribly and uh, mutually exclusive futures that don't make any sense. Um, yeah. This is a film I think we could all uh, we could discuss to some degree at some point, mm-hmm. but uh, that's that's a really entertaining film and absolutely worth your time. The next film I watched was one that was recommended by our uh, buddy Henry, who uh, commented last week, and it was called Taste the Blood of Dracula. 
because I was talking about Vampiros Lesbos and talking about the uh, way that the female sexuality is the threat in the film, and it is the, uh, you know, and Henry recommended that film. I think the first third of Taste of Blood of Dracula is brilliant, maybe even the first half. Uh, once it gets into the kind of deeper, you know, more kind of generic horror stuff where people are just dying, I think it loses a lot of steam and a lot of interest for me. I don't really care about the kind of the last half of it. Um, but I thought the setup was absolutely brilliant, and I and I wish that, uh, and that's, I, I'll admit that that's me speaking just of my, like, I'm not really a fan of kind of generic horror kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm interested in the ideas, and I and I wish that it had followed the kind of character motivations further and pushed that. Uh, I still liked the film, but I think that first half was riveting. I, I little, legitimately thought that first half was awesome. Um, that's also the very first Hammer film I've ever seen. So um, Nice, nice. You know, uh, um, when we finally review it, I'm going to have to fight you then, I guess, because I uh, love that well, film. I I do enjoy the film. I think I think we'll have a conversation, and I and I, and I look forward to hearing your um, you know. I like to taste the blood of Dracula enough, and this is something that I do in a lot of these uh, kind of low budget films that we talk about. Is uh, I'll start googling the uh, production team, mm-hmm. uh, the writer and the director, and just kind of look at what else they've done. And I uh, found out that the director of Taste the Blood of Dracula, I don't have his name in front of me, um, also did a sci-fi western Westworld ripoff called Welcome to Blood City. <laughs> um, I've never heard of that one. I'm, I'm not surprised. It's uh, actually, I think, better than Westworld in, <laughs> in some ways. You know, where Westworld has the kind of uh, writing of Michael Crichton and the direction of Michael Crichton and the uh, Yul Brenner star power, uh, Welcome mm-hmm. to Blood City has Jack Palance and, oh. uh, and Care Dolia who was uh, Dave Bowman from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Nice. And that was kind of like, wait a minute, this this guy who directed Taste of the Blood of Dracula, which I admired the direction on, um, there's some really nice direction there. And then Care Dullia, who I only know from 2001 A Space Odyssey, and uh, he was a defense attorney in an episode of Law and Order in the 90s. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I, I kind of have to, to, to pull this up. And I found a uh, website that um, had it, you know, an old VHS rip. I mean, it's clearly an old VHS, um, complete with uh, bad tracking and, uh, you know, yeah. bad video edits and stuff. Uh, pan and scan, you know, uh, so, but I but I got to watch it, and, uh, you know, it's fairly interesting. It's uh, uh, it's, it's kind of called, uh, I Googled it, some of the, uh, the very first time that virtual reality was used in a film, and mm. it's basically uh, these five people wake up in the middle of nowhere in these kind of sci-fi slave, you know, jumpsuits sort of things. And uh, they all have, they don't remember anywhere where they are. They have a uh, piece of paper in their pocket that that says how many people they've killed. And they all uh, know, and it turns out they're all killers. And then they end up at this town, and it turns out to be a western town where uh, the only way you can become a citizen is by killing somebody in a fair fight. You know, it's, it's a lot of kind of generic sci-fi western action stuff. It's not a great film. It kind of ends in a kind of thematically limp way. It doesn't really have the courage of its convictions in some ways. It's an interesting film. It's it's worth checking out. It's worth 90 minutes of your time. If, if you're a fan of Westworld and want to see what one of the rip-offs look like, and I, I do think it's it's not as uh, fun a film as Westworld, but but I think it's more interesting than Westworld, which is, which is a little bit 
uh, again, thematically and, and concept limp. So um, welcome to Blood City. Also, if you're listening to this podcast, like stop listening right now and go Google this film and just look at the uh, the poster and look at the font selection on this poster. It's a, it's worth a look. So. All right. <laughs> Interesting. I have to check that out myself. Um, blood is in the like uh, kind of 70s, early 80s, like a uh, alarm clock, like a digital alarm clock. Oh, clock. really? Yeah, yeah, and so so it's very much it's, it's trying to uh, push that combination uh, western with like near future sci-fi. You know, look at how hip we are to to technology and computers in 1977, and that's that's kind of what that that film. Is. <laughs> nice. Um, it's not very good, but it's probably worth checking out. And Jack Palance is really good, and and Cardelli is very good. In it. Cool. Yeah. Uh, Hugh, anything you watched in the last little while you want to talk about? I uh, saw the ridiculous six Adam Sandler film. Um, what did what did you think of that? I liked it. <laughs> you did. If you, I, yeah, if if you like Little Nicky and Mr. Deeds, it's kind of like fusion with, but it's like a western kind of thing, and kind of like Zohan because it's kind of CGI'd a bit to the ridiculous realm for some gags and shit like that. But I thought it was pretty funny. I I was kind of blown away by a few of the jokes that got me off guard. Like you know, Adam Sandler is typically over the top. I used to listen to the comedy album, you know, in high school. Mm-hmm. We all listen to that and. We're always kind of blown away by that, and this is just kind of like to the next level where it's kind of still shocking me, I guess, in this film a little bit. So, oh, interesting. I was, I was kind of pleased with that one, and then I watched Star Crash. You sent me a link for Star Crash. I watched that. Yeah. One. And that, <laughs> that, that one was. Yeah, I loved the dialogue. It was like old, you know, old movie lingo mixed with like old gangster talk from the '30s or some shit, almost <laughs> like. It was really weird the way they the the shit that they said and that was it was pretty kind of over the top too and then I watched a, a really a weird crappy movie uh, on vacation of uh, a Patrick Swayze movie called Black Dog where he was a a trucker that basically I've seen uh, that yeah <laughs> it was like pretty way back when in the nineties yeah. yeah it was dumb <laughs> it was I, I watched it anyway somehow I sat through it and and uh, watched. Hey. Murder tons of villains with this semi truck, and it was good. Can we can we go into Star Crash? Because like, can we just talk about uh, Carolyn Monroe and the uh, leather bikini thing? No. I mean that that is that is the main attraction of Star Crash is Carolyn Monroe looking really fucking good in every scene she's in. Yeah, and the and the uh, the robot Texan sheriff. Like that's the uh, <laughs> for for me that's the surreal element that really like drives that film far above any level it deserves is the fact that somebody thought that was a good idea and they put it in a movie. And then what's his name? Uh, Christopher Plummer basically taking a paycheck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> it's, a, it's a much better film than it deserves any credit for being. That, that, mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of where we land on that. And, and of course, I think we mentioned before, but it's uh, Luigi Cozy or whatever his name is who did Con- uh, Contamination. Uh-huh. Same, same director. And who he, he is a big sci-fi nerd, so... He he was right on board for doing that film. So yeah. I mean, it's very clearly kind of a low budget combination of uh, something like Star Wars and Barbarella. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it very much is. It very much comes out of that. And there's like this this some nice stop motion stuff where you mm-hmm. know clearly it's like kind of like inspired by Ray Harryhausen. Like for a kind of low budget Star Wars ripoff, it's it's one of the better ones. Once you understand, oh, this is made on a budget of four dollars, it's not a terrible film at all. <laughs> You just have to kind of accept its genre to some degree. It's worth 90 minutes of your time. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Earlier 
this week, a bunch of Oscar screeners basically got leaked on the internet. So these are the films that are given to everyone who's going to vote on the Oscars. I, I think it's been leaked to some producer or something in some movie company, basically leaked these. But uh, you had, like, uh, Leo DiCaprio's new movie, Revenant, I think, was leaked, and a couple other ones. But the big one is The Hateful Eight was leaked. And I watched the leaked version on Put Locker. I'm not afraid to admit it because I'm fucking buying the fucking film, so it's not like I'm stealing it. I'm going to see that on the biggest screen I can possibly find that on. And like, I, it's a and Tarantino I, film. I will see that on the big screen. Like, and I fucking envy you because this is shot in 70 millimeter. Just the amount of shit you see on the screen is fucking amazing. Like, he goes all out with the 70 millimeter. And it's like the plot's not that complicated. It's ten little Indians set in a isolated cabin in a snowstorm. It's got elements of John Carpenter's The Thing. And that's not even just the soundtrack from Ennio Morricone and Kurt Russell in a starring role. But there's also other allusions to The Thing. It is so well done, I'm not quite sure if I'm convinced it's his best film. It's definitely probably his most outrageous one. I think here Quentin Tarantino is explicitly going after his critics uh, because the violence, when it gets to it eventually, because this is his longest movie ever, uh, <laughs> there's, there's there's two different cuts. One is uh, about two hours and 40 minutes, and the other one is three hours with like an intermission put in or some shit. But uh, I watched the two hours, 40-minute one, basically. The the violence is more of what you saw in Django. Just, like, super bloody, super violent. Every character in this, they're, they're not good people. Like, they're all disgusting, criminal, kind of ne'er-do-wells. Uh, although you still end up rooting for some of them anyways. The dialogue is fucking fantastic. Uh, essentially, he's basically hitting all the marks of his biggest criticisms. Like, the movie's too long. The movie has too much talking. The movie is too violent. Samuel L. Jackson says the word nigger 8,000 fucking times. Like, if this movie serves any purpose, it's to make Spike Lee's head fucking explode. And I, I totally applaud that. Well, like, if that happens. All, all, all I have to say, Armand White came out against this film. Therefore, it's a brilliant film. Like that, yeah, that's yeah, well, uh, you know. There was a piece I found, and I didn't know it was by him, and I just kind of clicked on it. It was uh, in my like Facebook rec recommended feed or whatever, and it was all about um, the use of uh, gay terminology and gay slang and gay culture in uh, Hateful Eight. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I haven't seen the film. I don't know, like, like, like how is how is Tarantino yeah. using this and etc. And I'm reading it, and I'm like, that sounds like a like an interesting criticism. And then I scrolled back up and I saw, oh, it's Fire Around White, therefore I don't take that seriously. I mean, I'm going to definitely watch the film and be interested in, in, in that element of it. I'm going to be paying attention to it. But it's also like, well, it's by Armand White, and therefore uh, Armand White is a fucking idiot. I mean, yeah. he's not. He's, a, he's actually a really brilliant, incisive critic. He's a contrarian. I think, I think it's useful having that perspective out there. But at the same time, it's like, I don't care. I don't care what you have to say, Armand White. You know why? Because it's not even that you're a contrarian. It's that you bring this kind of art film. You think you're better than us by, mm. by bringing a certain level of, like, well, uh, art film criticism with uh, genre roots. 
and that's that's what you, well, you try well, to here's, bring. Here's, here's but also, about, but also belittling everyone who hasn't seen all the films you have. Well, here's the thing about White. I I don't believe for one fucking second that he's being honest in his reviews. I think he's a fucking troll. I mean, he's a contrarian on purpose. I don't believe he honestly believes the shit he says when he writes his fucking reviews. That makes him totally not useful at all. I mean, he's not he's not a dissenting opinion in that he has any original thoughts about movies, as far as I'm concerned. I think he's just a fucking dick. Well, <laughs> I think as 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 a good leftist, I I cannot complain about a uh, black man's discussion of race. I just I can't. I can disagree, but I can't. I cannot comment on Armand White's perspective and and challenge him on that. I can only say, well, based on your reading of the film, based on your arguments, I don't believe your arguments. But I cannot challenge his perspective based on because I'm not a I'm not a member of that oppressed class. So when he talks about race, I kind of have to like respectfully disagree, but I ultimately can't comment directly on it. That, that's just kind of where I land on it. I I'll just flat out say he's full of shit. <laughs> I, I mean I I think he's full of shit, but not because he's not because of the racial stuff. Because oh, of all no, the no, no, stuff, no 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 no. But I mean. I it, it, what it boils down to is that he's so full of shit on everything else that I can't take anything else he says with a grain of without a grain of salt basically. But uh, anyway, back to the fucking film. The the soundtrack is fucking brilliant. It, it's it's fucking beautiful. At, at first, I heard you know conflicting reports that he was just going to get like a couple unused tracks from John Carpenter's The Thing and from Morricone, but it, he actually got Morricone to. Sc- do an original fucking score on the film. So there's like a bunch of original pieces on it. Uh, there, Of course, also, as he has been doing in his latest films, bringing in some more contemporary shit into period pieces. So there's like a White Stripe song on the fucking soundtrack. Um, but it weirdly fits. It, it actually probably fits better than some of the modern stuff he's put in Django and Inglorious Bastards. I think it is great. I think it's really abrasive, in-the-critic's-face kind of thing, and I kind of applaud that. It's not a spaghetti western. It's not even really drawing from movie westerns. It's much more TV westerns, like the 50s TV show westerns kind of thing. Like That's basically what he's stealing the plot from here. There Actually, I think there's been some articles that have been published as of late saying he basically took this story from like a specific 1950s TV western. Hey, fuck it, whatever. I mean, that's what he does. He steals and regurgitates it and makes it his own. And he does it here very effectively. I was really entertained throughout the whole two hours and 40 minutes I watched. I think maybe I still would side with Jackie Brown as his best film, but this is really fucking good. It is really fucking good, and I think it's a shame that it's probably going to be overshadowed by uh, the new Star Wars film. To date, I haven't seen Hateful Eight. I'm hopefully going to see that soon. I would. Uh, I love Jackie Brown. I watched that uh, recently. I still think Me probably too. Inglorious Bastards would be my my pick for his best film. I do love Django Unchained, and then Jackie Brown would probably be third after that. But that's that's a really close bet. But I think Inglorious is still is still I would I would call his best film, uh, which I did watch the uh, the first twenty minutes of just because I uh, I needed a uh, a palate cleanser after some of the uh, some of the other films I watched and went oh well, let's watch twenty minutes of uh, Inglorious <laughs> Bastards. So yeah, cool, cool. 
All right, uh, we can jump right into uh, Zardos now from 1974. into the vortex. You will show me how you come to be here. Ah! Tell me everything. My name is Zed. For Zandos, I am an exterminator. Directed by John Borman, who also wrote and produced this. And John Borman is actually a pretty prolific director. He's still alive. He's in his 80s now. Uh, he did some pretty uh, seminal films in his day. Some people might recall Deliverance being one of them. Excalibur, Point Blank with Lee Marvin, which is one of my personal favorites. Uh, Hell in the Pacific, and he's done a bunch of other stuff as well. Very diverse director. Um, is starring Sean Connery. Uh, Charlotte Rampling, Sarah Kestelman, John Elderton, Sally Ann Newman, uh, Neil Boogie, and Bosco Hogan. Yeah, the, essentially the plot of this, it's, it's a little hard to uh, get at first, uh, unless d basically depending on what fucking version of this film you see, because uh, there was a different version that's re-released 
that has uh, uh, one of the main characters in this film explaining essentially the entire fucking plot to the viewing audience so they don't go into the film confused. But it's essentially a uh, post-apocalyptic film to a certain degree, but it's sort of a slow apocalypse. It's like the end result of the eventual decline of humanity. The sort of scientific, rich, ruling class of humanity got together at one point and decided to connect themselves to this computer to better themselves, uh, make themselves immortal, to preserve all of humanity's knowledge. And when they did this, they effectively isolated themselves from the rest of humanity and basically let the rest of humanity regress into barbarism. You basically come into the future, it's, uh, I believe the year is 2239 or something like 2293. that. 2293. 93, okay. So um, pretty much exactly 220 years after this film is uh, made. Yeah, and uh, essentially what you have is the ruling class, every time they die, the computer they're connected to basically reconstitutes their bodies, puts their consciousness back into those bodies, and brings them back to life. And so they're effectively immortal. They no longer have to have sex. All the males in the group are impotent at this point. They're basically living a totally pointless life. They are trying to exterminate the uh, barbarians on the outside. And the barbarians are basically two different classes. You have the brutals and you have the exterminators. The exterminators are going around killing the brutals on the uh, behest of this floating head called Zardos, which is their god. And apparently the recent immortal who is uh, running Zardos is giving some different orders to some of these exterminators, and that's where Sean Connery comes in. He is one of these exterminators. He actually stows away on the floating Zardos head and infiltrates this society of immortals, and that's basically where the sort of story picks up. I'm, I don't know if I'm quite explaining the story all that well, honestly, but uh, yeah, actually, uh, Hugh, I'll let you uh, give your first thoughts on this one if you want to. Yeah, I fucking I saw the preview for it, and it was awesome uh, when you posted it there, and then uh, I, I like the this type of thing, and it kind of to me was a really like a like a way of comparing it to like religions that we have now, you know, especially growing up in a religious area where we have Mormons and all these other heavy duty outfits that I've had to be around. I mean, it was pretty heavy for me to see the similarities in in how this uh, guy wrote this film. Mm -hmm. uh, to see even like when uh, what's his name, friend? What's yeah, friend. Name? Yeah. Uh, when, when he's at the table and they're all, you know, because he's their outcast in him and stuff and that. And it's like, you see that in real life and like the parody to, to what I see around me and what I've been through to, in all this movie. Like, this guy just shit kicks organized religion in this movie. <laughs> back. And I'm, I'm almost wondering, not to be a conspiracy theorist, but like, why is this film so hard to get? I mean, I had to look all over to try and find it again. Mm -hmm. It's not an easy film to find, and I think a lot of religions probably wouldn't like it. I mean, to, to see the, the comparisons in this, or and The Wizard of Oz and all this stuff, it was just, it, it's a head trip. Like, I had to watch it twice just to, like, get to how you were explaining it there. Like, I had to re I had to go through it all again because there's a couple things I didn't understand. Like, well, how, where are the psychic powers coming from? Because, like, I missed that bit the first time and how they worked. And I had to really, like, pay, I wasn't paying enough attention the first time, I guess. Yeah. 
Right on. Uh, Daniel, your initial thoughts on this one. This definitely, uh, I, this was my very first time watching this film all the way through. I had uh, kind of seen bits and pieces of it I, back in the 90s, quite honestly. I, you know, I'd seen it on Encore or something. You know, I'd seen a little bit of it, you know, in kind of a, oh, yeah, yeah sure. So uh, this exists very comfortably in that kind of era of uh, basically pre-Star Wars science fiction films. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about that later, I think, um, in terms of like what this film represents and what, what the blockbuster did to this kind of film. Uh, but it, it exists very clearly in that kind of uh, alongside something like Logan's Run, um, mm-hmm. Silent Running, sorry, two films with Run in the title, I guess. But uh, <laughs> it, it exists uh, very comfortably in that um, you know, Sonic Green, you know, lot, lots of other films like that, which are the kind of more uh, kind of intellectual early 70s films. It, it actually exists... Um, one of the things I was thinking of when I started watching it was uh, the science fiction, the the written science fiction, literary science fiction of the time had moved away from kind of straight, um, kind of hardcore, you know, kind of ray guns and uh, green aliens kind of stuff. Had moved much more into talking about kind of social science and talking about kind of psychic powers and what if psychic powers are actually real and that sort of thing. And uh, what does this mean in parapsychology? And and this film really exists very much within that continuum, whereas usually uh, film and TV science fiction kind of exist in a, uh, like, oh, you get 20 or 30 years lag <laughs> between, like, the, the, the kind of the, the real kind of core of the genre and then what TVs and movies decide to give us. This is uh, not a great film. I, I think that it, it uh, suffers from just being... Uh, a little bit unfocused. It doesn't quite know the point it's trying to make, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that it it's uh, one of those films I've seen, uh, you know, it, it feels like it's an adaptation of a great novel, and I really want to read the novel. It, there is no novel. It's it's yeah. just film. Um, and so it is kind of like a lot of these ideas feel a little bit undercooked. But I think as cinema, like, there are some really great images here. There's some really great stuff, and I, I will discuss that here later, I think. There's some uh, really great ideas about um, kind of you know how societies are organized and and that sort of thing. Um, one thing that I'll say is that I was um, and this is uh, not to uh, not to uh, step on Hugh's toes at all here, but I, I kind of heard like people saying like, "Oh, this is hugely complicated. I didn't understand what was going on, etc." Maybe it's just because I kind of grew up on old science fiction. Um, this felt very comfortable for me. I didn't have any issue kind of following what was going on. In fact, I probably would have like seeked it out earlier and watched it. And I, you know, had I kind of realized, no, 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 this isn't that complicated. I think that it, it definitely follows Zed, uh, the Sean Connery character's uh, mm-hmm. perspective. It definitely you learn things as he does, but I didn't find it to be confusing at all um, until the last maybe ten minutes, where they kind of throw some plot revelations at you that don't make any sense. But I think we'll get there uh, shortly. But I, I, I enjoyed the film. I think it's 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 quite good. It's worth a watch. But it very much is it very much fits into this place and time in terms of like it's 1974, you know, and it's and it's a fairly big budget sci-fi film, you know, made by a, uh, a up and coming director, you know. So yeah, I quite like this film. I do find that it does it does sort of meander after a while. Um, and it, it in I, I personally I do kind of like feel it like it, it does feel confusing in parts just because maybe more of editing than anything else like it sort of jumps around a little bit here and there but I think 
for the most part, it's it's pretty it's pretty uh, obvious what's going on in the film because even without the tacked-on explanation at the beginning of what's going on. It kind of spells out what's going on like fairly early in the film. But it, essentially what it is is like Sean Connery's character, he's the, one of the exterminators, stows away on Zardos, the floating head, goes to this place called the Vortex, which is sort of this isolated community for these immortal Eternals. He becomes a curiosity to all these uh, immortals. Like, because basically they they've lived they basically are living this stagnant life with no real excitement or anything interesting going on. A lot of them end up killing themselves all the time, only to be reconstituted. the The crimes in this community are thought crimes, pure purely. Like there's no other real crimes in the community, but anyone who has like a dissenting thought is suddenly a criminal and put on trial the actual sentence for being convicted of a crime in this community is to be aged a few years depending on your crime and if you be if you're aged too much you end up becoming senile and put in this uh renegade community of all these old eccentric crazy people who are all dressed up like 1930s people they're they're, they're all they're all at a dance they're all they're yeah. all at a 30s or 40s a uh, USO dance it's uh, some some weird imagery, um, and I, I do have some some things to say about that. So you know. it's kind of interesting. Like uh, you basically find out that uh, Zed, his infiltration in, into this community is not exactly by accident or by even maybe his own desire. Uh, there, there, there are some machinations going on in in the background. Zardos, who is also Arthur Frayne, he he's basically have has been experimenting with uh, the brutals outside of the community. He's been engaging in some eugenics because he wants to die. This is the thing; these Eternals can't die, and he basically wants to destroy the society he's existing in. And he, the best way he can figure to do it is in secret by basically breeding a, a mutant version of uh, the Brutals outside who will eventually infiltrate the society and destroy it. So there's some interesting stuff going on in this. Although it's not done as well as it could be, like you said, Daniel, it kind of falls apart in its uh, second half. I, I find it to be one of the more highly original kind of like just sci-fi movies from its era. Like there, there's actually a lot more stuff going on in this film to a certain degree than you'll find in like uh, Silent Green and Silent it, Running. It, it reminded me of a lot of the fiction of a, uh, a writer called uh, named Samuel R. Delaney, who is a uh, actually a uh, queer. <laughs> he's a gay man who is married to a lesbian for a long time. Um, <laughs> Uh, most people will call him either bisexual or queer. I'm just going to call him queer, but uh, uh, a black man who was uh, in the uh, starting in the late 60s, he was first published when he was 19 years old, wrote a bunch of novels, and uh, who wrote creative writing and science fiction um, for a long time at, in academia. He's a uh, brilliant writer. I've read several of his novels, and uh, I would uh, highly recommend you just basically look up Samuel R. Delaney and pick up any novel you can find and, and read it. He he's a fascinating, fascinating writer. Um, just just I haven't read everything he's written, but I've read a good chunk of it. Th this reminded me a lot of him, kind of the dumbed down version of his writing, you know, quite honestly. But but in, in a lot of ways, it reminded me as uh, someone trying to do a Samuel R. Delaney novel, but you know, in a in a kind of a fairly big budget cinematic version. 
Sorry, I just wanted to bring up Samuel Delaney's name uh, like five times in, in a sentence. So I okay, right on. Um, Hugh, you, you brought up these sort of uh, religious sort of overtones you were getting from this. Um, and I, I think you make a good point there. Like there, there is a scene like uh, the character of Friend is this sort of... Um, and all, all the males in this eternal society are sort of effete, yeah, androgynous, sort of sort of uh, castrated eunuchs almost to some degree. Uh, Friend is essentially kind of a rebel voice in this. Like he's almost like Oscar Wilde in the Victorian area to some degree. Like kind of kind of that sort of counterpart. Uh, and and he is basically ousted and made a renegade because eventually they sort of get tired of his rebellion. Do you have any more thoughts on that, like, to expanding on that? Like, because there's definitely a sort of a message of conformity in the, in this. Like, their society has become so uh, conformist that any sort of adverse thought is uh, frowned upon. Yeah, I mean, and especially in 74, you know, just after all the, all the changes that took place in the late 60s and early 70s and uh, civil rights and everything, and then... I seem to see, like, ask me why I'm more drawn to, like, older films. Like, now I just, a lot of the newer movies I can't watch because uh, they don't mean much, like, a lot of them that I see previews for and stuff. And I've seen, like, in 2015, there seems to be, like, a real regression of, like, racism and stuff. And maybe I'll notice this all over, and, and music is really shitty. And, and uh, so I that's why I listen to older stuff. It seems to be, like, people, maybe everyone's sick of that. You know, they've heard it before. Maybe they're sick of this stuff, but... Uh, like being in a religious area, I saw all kinds of parallels uh, with churches and people that I know and mental problems that they're having. And like the old people, when they make them old, it's almost like a punishment. Like when you go to church and they're trying to scare you with the hell thing, mm-hmm. you know, that's like their only card is you're going to go to hell or this and that. And then so they kind of, I saw some parallels on that. It's hard to explain that the person would have to like watch the scene and maybe think of that. And just, well, it's uh, it's it's a it's a level of social control. Like they they use. I mean, they're they're essentially. Sorry, not to not to interrupt you, just to uh, to to follow up on what you're saying. Ultimately, this society it's an isolated society based on. And I grew up in Alabama, which find a place in the Western world that is more socially regressive than Alabama. Um, and it's called Mississippi, and I grew up not far from there. So you know, there, there we go. And I think that this is kind of where the the thing is going because. In the semiotics, the the imagery, these are they're they're space hippies. They're 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 future hippies essentially. They work in in a in a kind of almost in a commune. They they work in a in a very socialist system. They're literally making bread for each other and they share everything. They are supposed to be completely egalitarian, but at the same time, this egalitarianism and this communal social living uh, enforces its own kind of ideological rigidity. The point is that these small societies, they live and die based on this kind of rigidity in a lot of ways. I think that uh, what, you're, what you're putting your finger on there, Hugh, and, and again, not to speak for you, I apologize, the society, what they're doing is they're enforcing this aging. Like, you will live forever as long as you agree with us. Yes, and to like the degree, it's like the heaven thing, you know, with, with church. You're like, well, you live forever if you come here and you do what we say and you think like us, and you we all look together. And if, if there's a renegade, we frown on him and punish that person, so they all stick together and they're going to all go to heaven and live eternally. And of course, the the difference is in this case, they literally do have this technology. They can't like, they can let That's you it. live young forever yeah. as long as you agree. So mm-hmm. you know, whereas in in the real world t- today, we 
you know, obviously, you know, small churches in Alabama can't literally let you live forever. They can. We can't know empirically that 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 people are not dying and going to heaven, but they certainly don't have the like real world material. You know, like you can't see. Yes, I can live forever, and I mean, I think that there is this uh, implied social constraint of of we're literally killing you a little bit at a time to the degree that you disagree with us, and I think that's that is a, cool, a fascinating thing. That's that's a cool point. Like in the movie, like because they do have the actual physical immortality, as like with people we see now, they'll do anything because they want that. But these people have it, and now we find that they don't want it. Well, and it's not even um, living forever because everyone lives forever. But if you live, if if you're old enough, if you're you know physiological age is old enough, you go into the uh, the old folks' home. You you become senile, and you're, so it's not even like you're not still alive. Your sensorium is not uh, capable of of processing in the way that it once was. And so they don't even kill you; they make you live this kind of. Uh, Almost uh, the old, the old Jewish hell idea, the the Sheol idea of like pushing rocks for all eternity, sort of thing. Yeah, the, there's a conflict there um, because yes, they're all effectively immortal, and their lives, although they still have physical lives, they have to eat bread to sustain. Well, I don't quite understand why they have to eat bread to sustain if they're immortal. Doesn't quite seem to make sense to me. Essentially, that's well, what they're well, doing. If, they're, if, they're, if they can't age, but I mean, I, I you know, they, they don't, they don't get into the details of yeah, like, yeah, how yeah. this works. I mean, you but know, essentially, you know, they're 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 physically immortal. They they can go on forever. They don't age at all. The tabernacle, which is the central computer, sees to that. But the thing is, a lot of them want to die. Like they want to cease to exist. They want oblivion at this point because they've been alive for so long. But at the same time, they're conflicted because the ultimate punishment for them is to end up living in senility, where they no longer have total control of their minds like they do if they're actually in the actual society, where they, there there are no barriers. Like they have total and complete control of their minds. Friends conflict comes into uh, being where he doesn't want to be part of the group mind anymore, where he wants to think for himself, and he in, ends up becoming a renegade because of it, being uh, ostracized from the from the community. So essentially, the thing is, Zardos Arthur Frayne, like I said, he's been engaging in eugenics with these brutals. Uh, Zed is a mutant who is genetically superior to, although he is mortal, he's genetically superior to the people inside the actual society, and he becomes a threat to that society. To some degree, he's kind of complacently in on the plan, but he's also a pawn. Eventually, he's sort of pushed to taking revenge on this society of immortals because he kind of sees through Zardoz's falsehood and his lies, uh, which sort of spins back to the Wizard of Oz book, where he basically sees, oh wait, Zardos is the wizard. He is he's lying to everybody. He's kind of angry about that. Well, we get a we get a lot of uh, kind of twists at the end in terms mm-hmm. of uh, some some stuff that is uh, very subtly uh, portrayed, almost to the point where you could easily miss it on a on a first or second watch. But you know, at first you think Zed has uh, kind of freed these people of his own will, he's defeated everybody, and then he's told by Zardoz, by Frayn, uh, no, 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 you haven't, I, I had planned this from the beginning, and then you, uh, Zed says, well, no, I looked in the, the mind of the thing that was really manipulating you, 
And so ultimately, all of this is done by the tabernacle. The tabernacle wants to die. A lot of these ideas, and again, these are really big ideas that I really wish had been explored to a lot more degree. Yeah. It seems uh, like they try to just cram it in too short of a film. That's where I got confused. Is like They don't show you like the mind crystals and stuff to explain the psychic powers until the movie's almost over. So it makes the beginning of the movie a little more confusing for me. I, th- I think there was a sense in the early 70s that psychic powers would end up being a thing that actually existed, and they were kind of like using this. Uh, at least among, I mean, you know, like the idea that they're using crystals like really plays into like energy crystals and kind of new age philosophies and that kind of stuff. And uh, you just have to kind of accept that this film comes out of that and where they're just kind of assuming that, oh, if you have crystals and you're using mind power, then you can just control people and uh, do these sorts of things. I, I think that that's kind of where this film comes from, that, that kind of assumption that the future will be a combination of like computer technology and uh, atomic power and mind control, like like mm. just just telepathic powers. Back to the Arthur Frayne thing, uh, uh, the way they did that character up was a bit weak for me. Yeah, uh, like even like the mascara goatee and stuff, and then they kind of used him later on. They could have like put a little more effort into the Arthur Frayne guy, and he was kind of a cheat, one of the more cheesy actors and stuff. And I think part of that was maybe the point of the film as well as like to make him more of a flim-flam kind uh, of man to some degree. Like snake oil salesman sort of. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think maybe they were trying to like hit you over the head with that. I also noticed like uh, Sean Connery seemed to do, looked like he did his own stunt there when he went down that hill pretty good. Yeah. And I was um, kind of like, hey, that looked like that was him. Like that wasn't a bad stunt. That was a little... Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure he did because he, this, this was like uh, one of his big tries to get out of his James Bond image. Like, this was, I believe, the after his second go as James Bond at that point. He, he did a couple James Bond's films and then dropped out for His Majesty's uh, Secret Service, and then he came back for uh, Diamonds Are Forever and maybe another one, I can't remember. But, yeah, he was trying to, like, shake his James Bond kind of appearance. He, he didn't look any less like James Bond than he did in this film because he had the handlebar mustache and the red diaper and nothing else basically going on. Um, I, you know, I, I feel like there's a, uh, you know, so many people talk about the costume. You look at a still from this and you go, oh, the red diaper. Like, <laughs> and it looks ridiculous. And I, and, I, and I get that. But it's also like, this was 1974. Mm-hmm. Everybody looked ridiculous in 1974, and this is this is an attempt, at least, to uh, portray this future society. And uh, this is something I'm actually going to talk about costuming, where everybody like kind of wears these uh, these robes, these kind of hippie robes, in uh, the society in the vortex until you go to uh, be a renegade, and then suddenly. There are tuxedos they just give you, like it's just like a, a thing. They just give you a tuxedo and you wander around and yeah. uh, dance. I, I, I even a uh, friend when he when he shows up in that society, he's like, and now he's wearing a tuxedo. So I don't know if that's like just yeah. a thing they just give yeah. you. It was weird. Half his face was aged, and then the other half was normal. It was like right. Yeah, it was just weird weird visuals. It was just like that sort of 70s thing where you'd get weird visuals. Sometimes everything would look like, oh, we really put some money behind this. We They stretched their dollars, let's put it that way. Like, the budget of this was $1.57 million, and the box office was ultimately $1.8 million, so it wasn't a big financial success by any stretch of the imagination. But, I mean... 
for what it is, it actually looks pretty good, I think. Like, some of the elements of it are kind of weird, and uh, a lot of people like to mock it. Oh, Sean Connery in a red diaper, floating Zardos head looks fucking stupid. Uh, no, I actually quite enjoyed it. Like, as I was watching it, like, the Zardos head, I bought into it. Like, I it, liked it. It's 1974. That, that's, what, that's what special effects looked like in 1974. This is a good special effect in 1974. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, combined with some really uh, fascinating visual imagery, like the uh, the mouth, like spitting out guns. Yeah, and the shotgun shells coming out, looking like blood spitting out of the fucking mouth. Really good. I also really, really like the uh, near the end of the film, some of the sort of uh, rebel group in the society that is grouping around Zed and want him to help like, basically liberate them and destroy the existing social structure, where basically they're like, we'll give you all of our knowledge if you impregnate all of our women, basically, so we can start a new race. Um, right. And, and all of them are talking to him and giving him knowledge, and then it has, like, projected on them, like, equations and music notes. And... There's there's a lot of... There's some calculus there. It looks like mm-hmm. it's from... Uh, it looks like it's from Newton. There's definitely some integrals. Well, probably not Newton because he didn't use that notation, but there's definitely some, uh, some calculus. There's definitely some uh, philosophy. I didn't... I meant to go and dig into exactly what they're quoting from because they're quoting from something specific. There's definitely a deeper level. I think they're actually talking about uh, Marxist dialectical materialism. In the, uh, I think I think they're actually quoting from Marx in the uh, in some of those sequences. Huh. So um, the actual content means something, and I, I I didn't get a chance to go and dig into that. But the acquired knowledge that they give him changes him directly. And uh, man, th- there's such a, there's there's so much depth to this to this film in a lot of ways in terms of those kinds of ideas like simmering beneath the surface level of like the red diaper there's a deeper <laughs> level of like just kind of cinematic interest and then buried beneath that is this level of there's actually some thematic stuff some some more almost academic stuff going on which i think is uh it would be worth digging out at some point I, I should mention like a couple things I noticed in here. I don't know if you guys noticed this or not, but um, I think this movie actually kind of predicted like dumb internet speak to a certain degree. Uh, if you see where, and, and this is really cool. Like I, I was watching this, as like holy fuck! Like where where he gets that holographic ring, and it start, and he basically starts interacting with the tabernacle computer. It's like that's a search engine. He's basically talking to a holographic Google. Mm-hmm. So it's like this predicted it's, search engine. Ask Jeeves, but it's yeah. Ask the Hippie, you know. Yeah, it, it predicted it's ask search. Flower, that's what it's called. Ask yeah. Flower. Yeah, it's a flower. It's for decoration. Basically, this movie predicts fucking search engines and computer in inside of computers. It predicts dumbing down of speech because everything ends with a Z. If you look at the text that's projected, and it's like dumbed down, and the words are shortened, so it's like dumb internet fucking speak. To some degree, you could probably argue it kind of predicts the Matrix to some extent because everyone's connected to the computer. There's a little bit of that in there, but I'm sure like a lot of other stories and movies that probably did that beforehand. But uh, yeah, I no, that, that was an old idea even then. Yeah, no. Yeah, but it, it was really cool just to see that stuff. Uh, it was just surprising. I didn't re- actually expect it from the film, you know. Uh, 
even after watching it like a couple of times beforehand and then rewatching it uh, the last two times in the last week or so, okay, I never picked that up before, but now that I have the references yeah. of those you, films, you right? gotta keep in mind this is Borman's follow-up to Deliverance. So he made mm-hmm. Deliverance, and that was a huge financial success. And they said you can make whatever you want, and he decided to make this, yeah, which was he was trying to make a Lord of the Rings picture. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, basically he couldn't get the funding; like it was going to be way too expensive. And so he said, "Well, I'm going to make something in this kind of weird alternate world, and this is kind of what he ended up making." On that level, I mean, it's a very personal project. There are some problems with this, and I I, I do have some some thoughts about the uh, the use of sexuality in this film. I could definitely talk about that if you're if you're interested in that at all, you know. But you want, you want to go on about the erection scene? <laughs> Well, uh, that and um, the apathetics, I think. Uh, first of all, yeah. uh, Zed is very concretely portrayed in this film as a rapist. Mm-hmm. I mean, a murderer and a rapist, which uh kind of hard to have a rapist hero. Like, let's just, yeah. let's just admit that, you know. Um, he's not even ginger, so, you know, the <laughs> it's clearly, um, you know, the, the sequences of that and A, once we learn who he is and what he's able to do, you kind of say, well, he was manipulating the computer and showing them what he wanted them to see, and maybe that wasn't a real memory. So, But but it, certainly we're presented with this uh, uh, almost Planet of the Apes style, like he's a savage who's uh, you know violent and, and angry, uh, brought into this uh, higher kind of uh, Eloy society, the Morlocks and the Eloy, this, this higher society, Man, I'm just thinking about the visuals and how much some of the visuals just really represent other films. But he comes in, he's violent. You know, he has this history of uh, sexual and uh, emotional violence. And then basically they say every man here is impotent. No one can get an erection except for you. And then they deliberately connect violence with sexual arousal which if you view that as this society having their own form of pseudoscience and their own form of, uh, you know, we, we kind of believe this, we have this cultural belief, and then uh, we've kind of inflicted this on everybody sort of thing, you can sort of buy it, but at the same time it's like, wow, that's a weird thing to say, that, like, the, the erection only comes from violence. That's, that's something that's well, that, really hard, you know. I think that goes no back to the, to, the, to the religious part, though. I mean, like, they tell you that kind of shit. Like they'll tell people all kinds of weird shit, you know. Oh, if you know if you watch pornography, you'll become a violent pervert, you know, and all this weird shit. And this, I hear that all the time with Mormons and shit. They'll tell you all kinds of weird shit, and they have they'll they tell their people weird shit too. If you know, you drink beer, you're gonna be a hooligan, and you're gonna be violent, and this, and you know, and they tell people that in these more cult type churches. I think Hugh makes a good point there. Uh, I think that's what they were kind of striving for, that this society had become so isolated and basically inbred to a certain degree that that sort of weird pseudoscience mythological kind of thing had been become prevalent in their own thinking, in their own society, right? I think well, you see, sure. cults, cults love to use scientific quotes and statistics, to prove to say, oh look at this science, this proves that, and then they'll, they'll they they take what they want and they discard what they don't want. Like they're not going to come and start bragging about the theory of evolution in the church service, but they'll take, oh well, this study said that drinking beer makes you violent. And we don't like you know because they're trying to push their ideals, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that that's an I mean that's ideologues ideologues of of any stripe really, you know, yeah. kind of uh, 
I mean, the the uh, the mark of, of truly scientific rational thinking is uh, intersubjectivity, uh, where uh, you know we we take uh, a variety of viewpoints of uh, various people from different backgrounds and and different uh, lines of evidence, and we all come at one conclusion. And when we reach that one conclusion from five different arenas, we can be very sure it's correct because we all agree based on independent lines. I think here what you're seeing, and, I, and it's not necessarily that I disagree with you, I think that the filmmakers are somewhat misguided because they do show these people are kind of simultaneously saying uh, these kind of pseudoscientific things about the uh, erection, but at the same time, all the other science that we see is shown in the uh, in the film as being basically correct. You know, the idea that they do have this idea of uh, uh, his genetic proclivities and that sort of thing. And I think that um, this comes from the uh, the filmmakers sort of uh, trying to suggest that uh, healthy male sexuality has a level of violence to it, which uh, I, I think is uh, difficult to swallow. You know, in, in a way. You well, know? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. because yeah, in in the end, like the he got an erection from that girl that he ended up marrying, essentially in the end through nonviolent yeah. means, and, and she's the one who turned him on, not the weird mud wrestling and the weird shit, and they, they're showing him. Yeah, I, I think I think this I think this boils down again to the fact that the film maybe doesn't put all of its ideas together quite succinctly. Like, I don't think everything connects too well, so it kind of well, maybe leaves it too open-ended sometimes, where you can kind of see where, like, some ideas don't fully form. I think everyone can get their own ideas, can draw their own parallels, because it is kind of more artsy and vague, and mm. for your own personal experiences, you might notice something that you saw somewhere else you know, that other people might not pick up on or something. Yeah, I mean... Well, I mean, well we're, definitely, we're definitely meant to uh, the apathetics. So let's, let's talk about the apathetics for a second. Mm -hmm. You know, who are absolutely portrayed as, as being infected by this idea of not caring anymore. They eat the bread that they, they need, and uh, but they but they don't want to do any work, and they're, they're literally like... The, the girl will literally let Zed rape her because she just doesn't care, who gain their desire and ability to revolt because Zed gives his magic man powers, you know, <laughs> his, his virility, his, his, his masculinity. I mean, the fact that we spend the bulk of the movie staring at Sean Connery's hairy chest means something in terms of this mm -hmm. film. Like, he, he is very clearly, I mean, all the other men in this film are effete. I think that we are supposed to equate this kind of you know, very strongly masculine-coded man as a source of power and as a source of kind of uh, genetic, hormonal, whatever energy. Well, yeah, he's um, he's 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 basically been genetically designed as like a sort of secret super weapon to throw into this community and basically make them all base humans again. Uh, and and I mean, like, make no mistake, before Arthur Frayne started educating him and stuff, he was a murderer and a rapist. I mean, that that was his character. Before. And an indoctrinated yeah. murderer and rapist. Like, yeah. he was he was part of a... Like, they worshipped... Even the people that were getting killed worshipped Zardos in the clips, you see, because he's the one who brought what they needed, and he could float because he's a magician, so that's a pretty big trick. Like, even the yeah. people that they were killing would all get down and they'd all worship Sardos, who was spitting guns at them. But I, I think that one thing I noticed through for, from reading a lot of religious doctrine, so the Bible or whatever, they're always against the natural man. And that's why they're always against, you know, they're trying to tell you that don't pay attention to your sexual desires, you're going to do this. And essentially the church controls sex for these people. 
you know, it, for society, like for all, for especially older society, if you go back, like let's say, sixty to hundred years, had a huge control over sex and that. So, I mean, so but to see when those people that are totally numb and can't, you know, just whatever the apathetics or whatever they are, and they see this guy who can do shit and think for himself and stuff. I mean, that's then they're so like, hey, hey, maybe maybe there's something to this, you know? It, it doesn't come across the way I think they were trying to portray it. I think it was trying to be more symbolic than how it maybe came across. I think it just generally comes across as, oh, Sean Connery, man, and he and he's going to cure everything. I think it was trying to maybe be a more symbolic. Let's not forget that the women dominated the society, and they weren't all that fucking peachy either. I don't know. I, absolutely. You know? <laughs> the, fact, the fact that the... Uh, I, I feel like the... The message we get, at least, again, visually, the filmmakers had an idea for the film, and then they kind of got lost in yeah, some of the uh, some some metaphorical anchoring, um, which is something I've been thinking about a bit a bit lately about how metaphor gets lost. You know, the fact that they kind of designed this society as matriarchal, and the fact that uh, the the men in the society are um, not only less uh, important than the women in a lot of ways. But are are portrayed as very effete. They're very uh, kind of small and uh, weak and that sort of thing. And then bringing on someone like Sean Connery as the true mutant man who is stronger than anyone in the society <laughs> has a, a you know you you do get this certain like well what they really needed was a deep dicking. You know what I mean? Like there is this very clear um, there is this very clear like visual message you get. Regardless of what the filmmakers intended, and I think what I'm putting, what I'm trying to put my finger on is this idea of like, regardless of kind of, it's kind of hard to say what the filmmakers intended, yeah. Unless we kind of dig into interviews and stuff and kind of say what they wanted, but the film they made, I think, absolutely says like what this society needed was a really nice deep dicking from a hairy man, which um, <laughs> I'm as a hairy man, I'm completely in favor of. I, I I'm, I'm very much a, a fan of this. You know, I do think that it it does kind of lose some of its thoughtfulness when it when it makes those kind of points, and that's, that's I'm not I'm not trying to uh, belittle the film or or the religious reading. I, I think that it's, uh, but I do think that it's it's trying to make a more complex point about uh, not necessarily religion, but about any kind of authoritarian society in general, because the society is so much like very obviously future hippies. They're very mm -hmm. obviously hippies, but the hippies are really controlled by this computer that they built, and so they're controlled by this thing that they've allowed to control them. And, and so it's hard to kind of pull a real, concrete political message out of the film as a whole, and I think it is because the message is muddled. Yeah. Um, despite the fact that I think it's a good film, I think it works as a film. I think that trying to pull politics out of it, at least on a first viewing for me, is, is difficult. It, it does lose focus. Um, I almost felt like this was maybe like another version of Beyond the Black Rainbow, maybe like sort of the same kind of idea of like a utopian hippie spiritual society gone wrong. It was taken to extremes and failed. I mean, like they have those people that the uh, exterminators are policing or whatever, you know, and then they're growing the grain to bring back to the hippie thing, but they don't want to see it, so they pretend it's not happening and kind of like real yeah. society. There's the slaves, there's the cops, and then there's the elite. Yeah, no, I, I agree. There, there, it, it, on very broad terms, there is sort of a social strata kind of thing, like class system thing that's always kind of existed and they're commenting on. Well, they, well, they say they're all uh, egalitarian, but hmm. 
friend absolutely has his, you know, his statues and his room and his separate thing, and he's the one who gets to control Zed, and he's, and so you do get this sense of, uh, you know, some some of them are more equal than others, sort of sort of idea. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Can friend, Orwell, you know. Yeah, friend is essentially uh, gay man in Victorian England, essentially kind of thing. Like uh, he's like Oscar Wilde, kind of the contrarian to the social mores of the time or whatever. Well, and he, he's only accepted up to a point. Yeah, I mean, every every society needs its uh, sand in its gears just a little bit. And, uh, you know, I say this as someone who thinks we have way too much sand in our gears to, to a certain degree in that there are a lot of reactionary assholes who would, uh, you know, stand in the way of progress. And mm-hmm. I'd like to get rid of some sand. But the, the, there is a sense of, uh, in this case, uh, you do have this society of hippies who are uh, holding down free thought at the at the at their own expense. And I I don't know. I really want to dig into the idea ideology of this a little bit more. I I, I, I didn't have the time to really dig into this to the degree that I wanted to. I don't know how I feel about some of this, and I, I think I need to revisit it in the future. It's, yeah, it's um, a weird movie. Like we got a lot of. Uh... I was going to say, we've got a lot of Hutterites out here, and they, they're communal people, and I, I visit them. I have Hutterite friends, and I go out there, and we have beer, and, and, I, and I go into their society, and I visit them. I go into their houses, and I talk to lots of them, and they definitely, like, they, they're, like, we're outsiders. You know, you're allowed in if you're friend, you know, you can go talk to these people. You can do business with them, but they definitely have really weird rules, and they, they mm. have forced them just to, just to ha- just for the sake of having rules sometimes, it seems like. They'll they'll argue that point, but at the end of the day, they're extremely indoctrinated. In fact, they go to church uh, every day, and and Friday is their thing because they don't want to have the same religious holiday as as a Christian as the regular Christians. They are Anabaptists. They're they're a branch off the the Amish, the Mennonites, and the Hutterites all split, mm-hmm. and they all got kicked out of Europe, like out of Russia and stuff. And then they're in North Dakota, and we got them in Montana and in here a large amount, and they're. They are very successful farmers. They're very money-driven, but the, each citizen makes about, like each person in the colony only makes a very small amount of money. Like they do not have their own money. They make a very minuscule, like they don't pay taxes. They make such little money. And it's, it's a really, like to actually go into the, an actual society like that, to think that they're not indoctrinated, like that you can have a utopian hippie society or something like that. From what I've seen, from the one I'm around, there's definitely control involved. We go to church no, every day. Well, I mean, like it's, well, that's pretty extreme. Like that's super extreme. I'm not saying it always has to be that way, but that's my example of seeing like one that actually functions and works in the real world and is very successful, is very religious and very indoctrinated yeah, and very it's, full. It's very, it's very successful, but it's also very oppressive to the individual. Yeah. What you, what you run into with uh, a lot of these um, sects and a lot of these uh, cults, I don't like that word, but, but what you run into is uh, they have a, a high barrier of entry where, you know, oh, you have to go to church every day, you have to have uh, certain rituals, you have to maintain certain standards, um, because what they're trying to do is they're trying to get people who will obey without thought. Once you've sunk enough energy into this community and once you've joined, you maintain it and then enforce maintenance among other people specifically so that... Uh, so, so essentially it is like exploiting a certain thing of, of psychology. I, I think, I mean, in the, in the case of this film, what we what we get is a uh, a picture of a society where there were people who uh, basically separated themselves because they are the elites from the from the mass population just to maintain their own standard of living in the face of kind of ecological disaster. We don't get a real sense of like yeah. kind of what happened, but you know, you can imagine. I mean, it's the early 70s. It's an ecological or a nuclear or whatever kind of disaster. 
they they separate themselves out. They build this computer that's going to take care of them, and then they intentionally delete from their memories yeah. the memory of of how to defeat the computer. But then once they've done that, they no longer have control of their own destiny. And you kind of get the sense, or I kind of get the sense, that they intended to kind of go off and do their intellectual pursuits and and just kind of pursue that. But then once they were stuck in this world and they didn't have a way out of it, they needed a way to eat, they didn't have food, and so then suddenly they had to mill their own grain and and all that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. And uh, it becomes a much more complex social arrangement, like essentially become trapped by their own society. I think most of the people in this society in, in this uh, would like the fact that they're there, I mean, in terms of their creature comforts, but would uh, reject the idea that they, uh, why they had to do that, you know, sort of sort yeah. of thing. So, uh, I don't know, again, kind of goes under that. There, there's, there's a lot more kind of complex social arrangement going on beneath the surface, um, you know. Yeah, a couple more points on this one for uh, trivia's sake. When they were originally filming this, the government uh, initially refused to allow the production team to import guns for the movie uh, because this was shot in Ireland, and at the time the IRA was in full effect, but eventually they relented. And so you got the multitude of guns coming out of Zardos's floating head. <laughs> Which is um, such an amazing image. I mean, I, I, I was... I was uh, although they gave him a lot of guns and no uh, ammo. So there's that. Well, it was it was mostly shotgun shells from what I could see, and a lot of those guns weren't shotguns. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know where uh, Zed's pistol rounds came from, but uh, apparently, well, he he had them on his uh, he had those on his uh, what a uh, bandoliers or but whatever. But he right fires now. a lot of rounds. Like I mean, well, you know, like... he's Sean Connery. He can make bullets out of air. Let's let's yeah, face yeah. facts. He just he just shits rounds. I get that. <laughs> you know, he's Sean Connery. It's fine. He, he shits rounds and then he goes home and fucks he, the prom queen. That's what he the, does. The, the penis is evil, except when when you jerk off and then rounds come out of your dick. That, yeah, Zardos tells you the gun is good, the <laughs> penis is evil, the penis spews seed. And... Also, can I can I can I just say that like we know that the men in this society are impotent. No one ever said whether or not the women are, can get aroused or not, and I think that that is a uh, you know a, a patriarchal assumption. Like yeah. I just imagine Sean Connery going around and just like fucking every woman in that place, being like, "They can oh. still get aroused." There you go. You know, well, it seems like they kind of like intellectualize it for a while, and eventually they just sort of fall into his charms. Eventually, they they, they eventually come to the conclusion that hey, he's a really hairy chest. Let's get into this. Because he, he he eventually ends up with Consuela, and and actually that's an interesting scene at the end there where uh, they do the sort of um, Charlotte Charlotte Rampling who is amazing. Yeah, Charlotte Lamp- Rampling. They do the time delay thing where eventually they grow old and die, and then you see the cave paintings on the actual cave, and it's like a, a new start to human society where essentially they're the sort of um, sim symbolic cavemen or even symbolic Adam and Eve of like a new dawn for humanity almost which is kind of cool like it's a good I think it's a good book into the to the film honestly like for all the muddled shit in the final act I think it actually makes a pretty good point at the end but yeah uh, John Borman the director was actually in a cameo in this film he's one of the guys uh, Zed shoots in the fucking head when, when they're running nice. in nice. front of them in the horses uh <laughs> No, actually, it wasn't when he was running them down. It was the um, the the farmers were all uh, oh. standing in line. 
That was brutal. Shoots, yeah, and he shoots one of them. Yeah, it was pretty good. And the, this pre-credit sequence was added on basically to uh, explain the plot to the audience because apparently the test audience audience it, has found it hard to understand. It's, it's a great opening. I mean, honestly, it does it does uh, it, it doesn't explain anything, but it sets up the tone of the film very well. I think you know. Mm. So uh, I, I did. Uh, I did appreciate the, the, the kind of cold open. It was it was nice. But uh, I guess we can go into final thoughts here. Uh, Hugh, what, what are sort of your final thoughts on this film? I think that a little more explanation, like the movie was only like, what, an hour and 40 minutes or something? Mm-hmm. They went a little bit more into depth into the science part of it because like, that's where I always ask questions. Is like, well, how is this psychic shit working? And that I had to watch it twice to kind of... I learned it the first time, but it was uh, they go big old briefly on the mind crystals and stuff, and it could have been a little bit more explained. A lot of the stuff and like the the Arthur character still like with the with the mascara goatee or the felt pen goatee that bothered me a little bit. I mean, like you say, the budget cuts. I don't know how much they cut the budget where they had to use a sharpie to color his beard in, but I, and then uh, but I, I like it because it you know makes you think and. There's a lot of parallels you can draw from life and and all these experiences. It's kind of like just a movie about the human experience and and like you say, uh, government, religion, and society. And it, so it was kind of deep for me. It was uh, worth watching. Made me think. And you know, the same way like a lot of people do go to church to learn stuff. Like I, I'd rather take this like an artist's view on it because they don't really have like he didn't they say he didn't make it much money on the film. He didn't really. He's not trying to brainwash us. I don't think as much as. A lot of other outfits, you know. So I, I got a lot out of the film, and um, I, I like the older stuff, and so I'm kind of a sucker for this genre of sci-fi. So I was pretty happy. Right on, uh, Daniel. You sort of your final thoughts on this one? Uh, this is the kind of film that basically died after Jaws existed. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, once the big blockbuster kind of sci-fi. I mean, I guess Star Wars is the better the better reference. Um, yeah. but really, once. Once Star Wars hit and studios realized they could spend $25 million and make $100 million on a film, which was big money back in the day, these kind of more intellectual, socially conscious, ecologically conscious films went down the tubes to a large degree, and, and that's a shame. As imperfect and as, as uh, unfocused as this film is in a lot of ways, it's really interesting, and I... I really wish that uh, there was kind of a market for really big-name filmmakers to do big, heady science fiction um, and, and big, heady idea films, which uh, you just don't see very much anymore. And, and it's a shame. It would almost be worth killing uh, you know, Star Wars just to, uh, hmm. just to see more films like this. I mean, the blockbuster killed this, essentially. That, like, yeah, that's yeah. what happened. Know, and um, that that's kind of that's kind of a shame. I watch these I watch these films and I'm like, man, this is as 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 not great as this is. This is way more interesting than anything in the Star Wars universe will ever. Be, oh yeah, you know, definitely. You know? Yeah, um, totally agree. I I think this is a mixed bag with this film. I really do like it. Like I generally I'm generally going like thumbs up with this one. You know, it's like I enjoy it. I think visually it's pretty striking. It works well, even though it's got a limited budget and it shows in some parts. I think they kind of utilize it in a way that it has a bit of a charm to it, where I just like, okay, I've watched enough Avengers and fucking Doctor Who in my day where I can accept some of the, some of the budget limitations and some of the corners they're cutting here and there. I think Sean Connery does a really good sort of naturalistic kind of performance where he doesn't really have to say shit. He just sort of acts physically more than anything else, and he kind of uses his uh, sex symbol presence to its full extent in this film. It works Bert, really well. Burt Reynolds was the first choice for this. 
and he would have probably worked as well, honestly, to, yeah. when you think about it. Cause Imagine Burt Reynolds in the red diaper. And, um, well, I mean, honestly, Sean Connery is essentially, he looks like Burt Reynolds did in that period. I mean, yeah. they both had like the, the handlebar mustaches, they both had the fucking receding hairline and the and the toupees put on to cover that up and the hairy bodies. And I mean, Sean Connery's running around, he's doing all the physical shit that he did in the Bond movies, but he doesn't have to sit there and pretend to have any charm or anything. He's just sort of silent and part of, part of that is actually his character as well, where he's kind of suckering in these immortals and not letting on that he's intelligent as he really is. And I think his performance works really well. I like the performances around him. I think there's good supporting actors in this. And I think generally it works pretty well. The end gets muddled. That's the biggest problem. The end, the, the last half hour or so, it kind of meanders in different directions and it's not quite as focused as it should be. But overall, pretty good, considering that Borman writ, wrote, produced, directed the whole thing. It was basically his entire vision put on screen. If there had actually been, like, source material for this, like an actual book or whatever, I definitely would have wanted to get into that and read it, because it probably would have been pretty fucking interesting. But uh, but this is what we have, and Zardos not only works on an intellectual level, I think it works just on a really cool 70s cinema level with really great imagery as well. And I think uh, the people who make fun of it are not giving the film enough credit because I think it deserves a lot more. So that's where I fall. Agreed. Yeah, yeah, a lot of the cinematography is just phenomenal. It's it's worth an hour and 40 minutes of your time. Mm-hmm. And you can, uh, you can find it through illicit sources, of course, Put Locker and Torrance and stuff. Uh, there is a Blu-ray out uh, on it from Twilight Film, I believe. Uh, Arrow Film in the UK also has a version, but of course you need a uh, either uh, all-region player or a B-region player to watch that one. I don't think Arrow has released it as Region 1, even though they are doing some Region 1 releases now. But yeah, you, you can definitely find it. Uh, it but like uh, Hugh said earlier, it is somewhat of a hard film to find. It's a little little hard to get to. Uh, it's kind of obscure. It's sort of like one of those gems that has kind of um, been rediscovered as of late. I'm definitely going to put a link. Uh, Hugh linked something earlier on on uh, YouTube to me. Uh, there's this cute little uh, fake video game intro that someone did for Zardoz where it makes it all 8-bit or whatever. So I'm going to I'm gonna link to that. Uh, thank you for that, Hugh. That was pretty amusing. There is a theme music here. The guy who did the score implemented, like, parts of Beethoven's uh, Opus 92 into it as well. And there's this weird little thing on YouTube I'm just going to, from the soundtrack, basically, that I'm going to stick into the uh, the ending of this. And, uh, yeah, uh, we'll go to you, Hugh, first. Where can people find you on the uh, interwebs? Beerzerker80 in YouTube channel, but if you type in most beers and then just Beerzerker after, it'll come up because it's Beerzerker with a Z. And I do that homebrew, and the odd weird thing, I actually have a movie that me and my buddies made back in like 01 or 02 that I'm going to try and get up and maybe get into more of that. That's on my cousin's camera, so we're going to try. i got to get an adapter and get that short film, which is a pretty big head trip, up hopefully sometime in the new year here. Nice. And Where can we find you, Daniel, on the interwebs? Um, if you want to listen to me and my wife talk about uh, stuff from the 70s, 
particularly by British people. Uh, we have a Doctor Who podcast. We do classic and new series. Uh, we actually just put up an episode uh, because we decided to do it. We did the uh, season one of uh, Jessica Jones. Mm-hmm. And uh, to our podcast, uh, we're uh, building an audience a little bit surely, and um, I'm really proud of the, the, the work we're doing. But uh, check us out. It's at uh, OISpaceman. That's OISpaceman, all in word, .com. Or if you Google OISpaceman, you pretty much find us immediately. So, or OISpaceman podcast, you pretty much find us immediately. So uh, check us out. We're on iTunes and Facebook and all that sort of thing. So check us out. Uh, I'll say, Hugh, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, we'll definitely have you on again uh, if we find some uh, movie we want to do together. It was fun having you on. Uh, again, I'll reiterate, uh, like last time, we are now on iTunes. So if any of you guys have the old iTunes and you want to go find us on iTunes and maybe give our podcast a five-star rating and a glowing review or... A scathing criticism, as long as you give us five stars, I don't give a fuck what you say in the actual text message, but uh, do that because that will help us grow an audience and have more people to uh, send us nasty messages and comments, and that will always be welcome. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining me, and we're going to jump out. The next episode is going to be, uh, hopefully we'll get Paul back, and uh, at least Daniel and I will be here, and we are going to go through our Top films we watched in 2015, and uh, that should be a lot of fun. We'll have, uh, I think, a lot of stuff to discuss in that episode, and until then, we're fucking off, so thanks, guys. Goodbye. Cheers. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Zardoz has spoken.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For our other episodes, links to Daniel, Paul, and Lee's other stuff, and links to some great podcasts of similar interest, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can leave us comments on the site or directly email us. We listen and respond to everything. Thank you. Drive through.